So that's what I'm saying. The text is like an object. It's gonna change perspective based on where you're standing. I don't know. Hello? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? I missed you, baby sweet. It was a day, hmm? It was a day. Please tell me you're seeing this too. From Seattle, we are drinking the movies. I'm Taylor Baker. And I'm Michael Clausen. Oh, that is superb. That is delicious. We're drinking a lily pad hazy IPA today from the one and only Hellbent Brewing Company. And that it's the only one that we can walk to reasonably quickly and get back with delicious beer that might be different and is always fresh. Yeah, I don't know that we've ever really talked about kind of our routine for the podcast where we always start off with a quick walk down the street from your apartment to Hellbent Brewing Company, pick up a growler, in this case a couple cans, come back and enjoy them during the show. Yeah, yeah. The the thing that are missing there is the frost-chilled glasses and tossing the mm-hmm. growler or the cans in this case in the freezer right up until when we record so it's nice and ice cold and delicious um today we're talking about tribeca we're also going to do a um first impressions of some upcoming fantasia 2021 film festival titles just so we can kind of uh get a head look at some of the options we'll have whether or not we watch those options is to be determined first impressions may help us decide Hopefully will. That's that's why we do them. Mm-hmm. Um, I will include here at the beginning of the episode that I will uh, put in the show notes a direct link to my ranked list of Tribeca uh, film titles that I saw. Uh, Michael was much less determined to watch as many of these films as he could. And I think watched a total of three. Uh, I made up for that by watching 47 others. So we have a nice round number 50. Um, That's so what I was going for. <laughs> I'll, I'll put the uh, that ranked list in there. Just uh, a heads up. Um, the the top ten that I had were Lorelai, which I think will get a lot larger release later. It's got Jenna Malone and Pablo Schrader in it. Um, great performances. Uh, neat little indie debut called Poser. Another um, debut uh, called Ultrasound. It's going to be playing at Fantasia as well. Um, So I'd recommend everybody seek that out if they're attending. Italian Studies, which we'll talk about today with Adam Leon. So that's positive. Socks on Fire, a fun documentary that won Best Documentary at Tribeca in 2020. Um, I I really enjoy it. It's when you watch it, you can kind of feel a place like Mm. you have that place in you now. Uh, the Justice of Bunny King, which stars Essie Davis, directed by Gay Sorn Thabat, is number six. And I will have an interview that I'll tag on to the end of this episode, um, where I interview Essie Davis about her role. And then I'll also, at a later date, release an interview with Gay Sorn Thabat, who directed the film. And it's her directorial debut. Um, after that, we have another film we're talking about today. Last film show. A film Michael's much less uh, positive on than I am. Uh, then rounding out my list, I have Glob Lessons, a really fun, um, just a, a very focused uh, directorial debut screenplay and performance, all from the same uh, female writer, director, performer, producer, Nicole Rodenberg. I think she's going to be around for a long time um, and always going to be distinctive from what I saw. A documentary about China called Ascension, which was just flabbergasting. And mm. a, another directorial debut called The Novice from Lauren Hathaway, who did the sound design um, 
or some of the sound design for the film Whiplash? The novice I've heard quite a bit of buzz about, I think especially for the performance, mm-hmm. right? From a yeah. uh, girl who I know, I think, only from Orphan. Is that yes, right? The, the Orphan. Isabel, Isabel Furman. Is that right? That's correct. Dead on. And you were a fan, yeah? Um, I, I have a lot of problems with the films mm. at this film festival, so... My top hmm. 10 is not um, necessarily like these are must-see films, but they are the best films, in my opinion, at the festival. Hmm. Um, I, I think it's worth engaging with out of a lot of directorial debuts. It's probably one of the more interesting original voices this year. I would definitely recommend it over something like St. Maud. Uh, okay. All right. Shots fired. <laughs> Shots fired. <laughs> cool. Cool. Is it a horror movie? Uh, is that why you, you very, compare it to St. Maud? So I would compare it more to Whiplash. Oh, right. So it's... Why say... What, what, what brings St. Maud to mind? Directorial debut, uh, female director, um, female star, female star, female director, directorial mm-hmm. debut, same year. I'm just making... But it's a sports movie, right? I don't know if I would I mean, recommend someone... No, I, I would say that it it's up until a few moments in St. Maud, I think the tones are very similar. I see. Of kind of walking this line of, I don't know why this is happening... Why is this behaving like that? And a lot of looming dread, a lot of like weird things happening, some lightning strikes, some mm. rowing in the storm. Um, there's mm. there's some moments. Moodiness. I think if you, you watch it, you'd be like, yeah, this is a lot more like a horror-esque thriller than a, like a conventional sports film. It's very much mm. not a conventional sports film. It's like a woman who seems to hate herself and has a competitive drive that seems insane it's it's a lot closer to like a horror whiplash than a and mm. than any sports film yeah you know how many of the films on that list have distribution some of them none of them the Zero. only one that i know that you mm. can watch um is going to be which one i just had it in my head oh yeah ultrasound um and that's at Fantasia. Mm, right right but otherwise i don't think anything's been formally acquired um so there you go. That. Maybe Maybe. Ascension. I could see Ascension getting acquired by Netflix and released under the radar. Um, just a tight little documentary. But I'll I'll have that list in there and as availability comes up, if you have a pro account on Letterboxd, it'll tell you where you can watch it. Uh, on to some first impressions though, Michael. We have The Suicide Squad and All the Moons, both of which are playing at Fantasia 2021. Which would you prefer to watch first? Let's do The Suicide Squad. We're all gonna die. I hope so. Oh, for fuck's sake. Here's the deal. We fail the mission, you die. If we find out any information you give us is false, you die. If we find out you have personalized license plates, you die. What? No. If you cough without covering your mouth... Harley, although that isn't an open invitation for you to cough without covering your mouth. All right, that was the trailer for The Suicide Squad. From uh, James Gunn. What'd you think? Of unknown affiliation to Suicide Squad from David Ayer, 2016. Mm. Um, I have multiple things with this movie. Mm. I am not that impressed by what I saw. I have a feeling it will be fun and relaxing to watch. As a popcorn flick, which... you know, a high-quality popcorn flick is very rare these days, based on what I've seen recently. Things like Infinite or uh, the Hitman's 
wife's bodyguard. Like these things are not of high quality. And when they are even serviceable, it's kind of rare. So in that, I'm kind of um, eager. I have a past tense with these heroes. Um, so that's kind of interesting to me. I like a lot of these performers. Most interesting to me is Silver Stallone doing voice acting of a giant shark. Mm. Um, you know, he's always made fun of for his voice and the idea of him doing voice acting and getting into his uncomfortable zone, um, I think is just a really cool thing that Gunn decided to do casting wise. Um, I suspect I will watch this and forget it, but I think I might enjoy watching it. How about you? Very low chances I would uh, take the time to, to seek this one out. This is the kind of thing that's just not really in my wheelhouse at the moment. I think it looks so tacky. I just don't understand the appeal of this kind of thing anymore. I've just I've never felt like so out of touch with the mainstream at the moment where it just looks so tacky. I don't vibe with the humor. I just don't understand how this is still so popular. I'm just increasingly numbed by it. Um, I, Numb, I, that's uh, exactly, yeah, that's it. Yeah, I, I I'm still numb is better than horrified sometimes. Sometimes, it's not fair. always. It's true. It is not like an active hate. You know, there yeah. are movies where like I despise what they're trying to do. It's not that mm-hmm. kind of thing. It's just this is just not going to do anything for me. Um, I'm not quite sure what the relation is still between this and the uh, first one. Um, like you I said, think it's a do-over? unknown. Unknown okay. <laughs> yeah. relation. Um, I did see. The I think original. it is kind of a do-over. Like I think they're trying to do like a unified DCU with multiple worlds now. And I don't. Mm. I I'd have never read the press release, and I don't really care to be honest about the differences. But I know that this one also has Margot Robbie, and I think the same guy plays Boomerang. Um, but who cares, really? Like I just I'm gonna mm. watch this for a few laughs and maybe some action sequences, and then I'm going to forget about it forever. Yeah. Uh, that is one way to do it. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I can't see myself getting uh, actually putting this on at, at, at any point in time. Uh, I think it's pretty unlikely. Not even in the middle of Fantasia Film Festival. Uh, probably not. No, I think there will be more interesting stuff than this one. Well, we so Probably the loudest... And buzziest title, though, for sure. Well, you can look forward to Michael's review of the anti-superhero film <laughs> Venom 2, Let There Be Carnage, at least. <laughs> Venom, I kind of like. That's a weird exception to the general trend with me. Venom, mm-hmm. I thought, was kind of entertaining because it's kind of messy. I almost, like, it's weird how at this point, like, some of the sl- so-called sloppier superhero movies, to me, feel the most entertaining just because mm-hmm. they just feel different. Yeah. One hundred percent. That's there's a lot of messy, lower quality, quote unquote, superhero films that I find a lot more interesting than the superb one. Like I'd rather have a three hour discussion about something like Bloodshot or the upcoming Morbius mm. than like any Marvel successful film like Infinity War, Civil War, or whatever. Yeah. Um, but on to the next Fantasia twenty twenty one title: All the Moons.
right, Michael, that was the trailer for All the Moons. From what I gather, this is a period piece about a vampire. What do you think? I would say I'm perhaps a little mixed about it. Um, can't say it strikes me as anything that looks too out of the ordinary. And it's like craft or storytelling. But uh, it looks like the center is on a young actress as the lead. She did uh, sort of catch my eye. I was, I was uh, somewhat drawn in by her uh, screen presence. Um the material is not exactly my uh, first choice of first choice of uh, things out there, but um, it looks like it could be entertaining as a thriller. The color seems a little washed out to me. I think visually, I was maybe a little underwhelmed by it. Um, what about you? Yeah, I, I mean, the trailer did a good job. It played lovely music that I'm very fond of. So there's some violas going on. There's some some uh, higher. Uh, tune violin strings going on. There's a lot of classical music. Um, there's conversations about angels and demons. And uh, it seems that this girl may be able to go out in certain daylight times. Hmm. Um, it, there's a lot of, you know, genre convention there. But mm-hmm. it does look like it's a sincere interpretation of the genre. Um, at an age that is uncommonly depicted in these, um, other than let the right one in, I don't recall very many, um, films centered on children as vampires or victims of vampirism. So I'm, I'm definitely keen to this one and that it's a film festival entry that looks sincere, not entirely original, but, um, you know, meaningful in the way that they interpreted the conventions, and for that, I'm I'm always willing to give an opportunity or a chance to, to see that. And I, I do like the period that they chose and the interest um, in ideas of this post-war world and fire being exchanged for electricity and these machines that are called planes soaring in the sky beside birds now and how the old romanticism of the vampire can live in the new world, um, which is, I think, where the genre gets most interesting in its conventions. Yeah, um, we'll just have to wait and see. Um, uh, you summed it up well. I don't know that I have too much more to add yet. I would be willing to discuss it on the episode. We'll see if I can talk you into it. There or if go. there's nothing better. <laughs> TBD. All right, on to False Positive. Now playing on Hulu. Welcome to the family. How are you? A little crazy. I am seeing things. Honey, me too. I'm having the wildest mommy brain lately. I don't I don't think it's mommy brain. I think Dr. Indle did something. I think they're in on it. In on what? Just to pick up with that. Last comment. I think this is one of the few titles at the festival that is already available, yeah? Uh, there, there's actually, like, a good half that I saw that are now They're already on streaming? They just suck. And they mm. weren't on my list, so I couldn't mm. discuss them. Um, also, this one sucks. Um, Werewolves Within is also now available. It sucks. Um, there's, there's a Roadrunner, which I didn't get to to be mm. honest, which I think is now playing in theaters and on VOD. Uh, a story about Anthony Bourdain. Uh, Wolfgang, a documentary about Wolfgang Puck. Mm. 
there's mm. there were quite a few entries that went like oh, that's were, Disney Plus one, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So basically, they played Tribeca and then they released within a week. Um, yeah, I think Audible was another one of those which we've already discussed from Hot Docs, um, mm-hmm. which came out two days ago on on July first. We're talking about everything on July third, but it won't be released for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So. False positive, Michael. Uh, this is an A24 film that's direct to VOD streaming on Hulu. It stars Pierce Brosnan and Alana Glazer with Justin Theroux. What do you think of this uh, shit pot? <laughs> well, I think we're in agreement. I was not a big fan of this movie either. Um talk a little bit about the story this is uh more or less a horror movie with some kind of comedic and satiric elements but uh attempted attempted fair enough i wouldn't agree that it is i'd say they attempt that there you go uh we have alana glazer and justin thoreau as this uh fairly well-off uh new york couple trying to get pregnant struggling to get pregnant Mm -hmm. and they um go see this uh high-end very reputable uh, fertility doctor played by Pierce Brosnan. Mm-hmm. Um, they're able to kind of jump to the front of the line. Um, he is a very popular and busy man, but uh, Justin Theroux's uh, connections to him in the medical community sort of jump them to the front of the line and she mm-hmm. manages to get pregnant. Um, she soon discovers she is pregnant with not one, not two, but three babies and tough decisions must be made after that. Um, I think you would be, I think it'd be tough to find a review that doesn't talk about this in relation to Rosemary's Baby in some way. I think that's kind of the obvious riff it's doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with some uh, more comedic, or probably satiric is the better word, um, attempts being made. Is that fair? Uh, yeah, attempts. I love that yeah. word, attempts. It attempts a lot, and it just fails so many times. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think there are, are these kind of different tones at play that just don't really come together for me. I wish, for one, that this was just playing a, a more frightening movie. I think, you know, so much of this is, is about kind of the paranoia that we watch Alana Glazer's character going through as she kind of um, is, is living through this pregnancy. There's very little that I even kind of remember or could talk about scene-wise that really stood out as interesting or memorable in terms of what she's even going through. I think there's almost just kind of a lack of material. Um, that's mm-hmm. that's part of the problem for me. I, I couldn't really tell you that much about what um, she goes through that is so um, sort of disturbing. There's really just not even enough here, I think, for it to be a good movie. I completely agree. It's, it's mainly filled with emptiness. And every aside and every illusion is empty in and of itself. Um, one of my favorite um, su- commonly supporting actresses, but I think she's a fantastic lead actress, is in this film. Her name is Gretchen Mole, and she is just an incredible mm. performer when she's given the chance, kind of like a Diane Weiss, where she can just make you feel so many things with just how she delivers a line and makes her chooses to make her face look like she just can do that. Mm. And she has a scene here where she just appears and asks for a magazine back and then leaves And it Mm. should have been so much more ominous and intruding. And she played it perfectly. But the way that 
that Alana reacts and the way that the scene just kind of sits and looks conventional and doesn't do anything image-wise that's that's enticing or informed or cohesive to the other pieces of imagery um, removes any sense of, of heightened stakes in that moment, which where the idea is that things are getting um, unreal or superstitious. Instead, mm. we are um, confronted with the total lack of film linguism ling- linguistic mm. understanding that this director has like he he's referencing a bunch of things but isn't actually doing anything cohesive with his piece which is like you know we talked about Sergio Leone Sergio Leone all he did was steal but he mm. informed his voice and he had this authentic voice that was pulling from all these different things constantly and this is like stealing all these different conventions and ideas and basic things and doing nothing with them uh, were there other movies that were coming to mind that you were oh this is i mean this is directly like uh i think it's been out for a while um now the documentary three identical strangers mm-hmm. right the, yeah, the yeah. end of that just like this there's also mm. another documentary called baby god just like this it's literally about a doctor who does this. Mm. Like there's there's tons of documentaries that have been coming out about this. And I knew within five minutes what this was going to be. When, once we meet Pierce Brosnan, it's like, okay, he's only going to, like he's he's here for one thing. And that's no fault of Pierce. I think that he does try. Um, but he's not, he's not even lit, interestingly. Like, <laughs> I, I think Pierce Brosnan is horribly miscast. It just made me think about... Um, how I, I like him as a comedy guy, and I feel mm-hmm. like they they told him to play it like a straight comedy, where he's supposed to be the straight man for the comedy, and he's supposed to smirk at a few things. And mm-hmm. I felt like he was just led the wrong way because he's done mm-hmm. other comedic roles where he's f- fucking hilarious. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I think more and more I may be finding what this seemed to sort of reveal to me is how often I. Um, big stars and small indies just don't work for me. And I feel like sometimes indies, smaller indies can feel like it's a big get when they cast a, um, a more or less of what's, yeah, Pierce Brosnan, I would essentially consider a star. He was James Bond, for crying out loud. Um, yeah, I wouldn't call him a big star, but I would say that he still has the resounding star quality. Yeah, I mean, I would say he's a household name. Um, yeah. He's incredibly recognizable that indies don't really, some, sometimes but don't really. But can you really, tell me the last big budget film he did? Like, like Mamma Mia? Uh, oh, Okay, I don't. Right, I didn't that watch that one. Big. If he's if he's um, in those, then okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Fair play. <laughs> yeah, I mean the point is that like he's incredibly recognizable. Um, he, he once had great stardom at the least. Um, that these smaller indies kind of think is a big asset, but they really don't know how to kind of conceal that stardom um, within a character. I just, I, I, I just think it's so out of whack with the size of the movie and the the scale of the star. It, it's it's just not. The compatibility is just not mm. good, um, which I feel like sometimes that actually like is the opposite of what people do it when they attend film festivals. Is like we look for the ones that have the big stars, and sometimes I end up thinking that's the wrong way to do it. Oh, I don't. That's why I prioritize directorial debuts. Unfortunately, this was one, so I I focused on it, and it was an A twenty four release, which you know, A twenty four ism is a thing in film lovers community, like. You feel like you can trust that. Now I've been burned back to back 
um, mm. with St. Maud in this. And if The Green Knight isn't <laughs> one of David Lowry's best films, then I'm going to I want to feel scorned. Yeah. Um, Lana Glazer was definitely the pull for me here, more so than A24 or Pierce Brosnan, yeah, that's for sure. It's interesting to see her take on this role. That's what I was thinking. But yeah. the reason it was on my radar as like a possible good film was the A24 acquisition. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, it's kind of a bummer. I think there are um, aspects of this that I think could have been pretty funny and that are, that do feel somewhat fresh to me. You know, I think some of the satire around kind of pregnancy culture and how uh, sort of condescending even women can be to each other when they sort of um, talk about these phrases like mommy brain that sort of mm-hmm. diminishes what, what everyone's going through and they sort of downplay whatever kind of um, anxiety or stress these women are experiencing. They just, you know, kind of toss it off as something quote unquote called mommy brain, which we, this is a very, very, very repeated phrase throughout this movie. Um, I think a lot of this could have just been funnier um, or, or had a, a little bit sharper of an edge to it. I think a lot of it's just kind of soft pedaled. Um, yeah. I, and it, I think yeah. that we have two different readings on why it's bad. Hmm. I I think you're wanting more distinction and originality from these performances, and and you know your your point about Pierce is I, I think correct and interesting, but I I didn't even get to go that far in logic because for hmm. me I was like this doesn't work on the page. The problem hmm. here is the screenplay. No hmm. amount of performance can fix a screenplay, really, unless the editor's a genius and you're lucky. And sometimes that happens like two times out of a hundred, a bad movie can be edited into a great movie. Maybe. Right. It depends. But here it's like, what version of these conventionalities was ever going to be interesting? I don't care if you would have cast three of the next greatest indie actors. I I just, I don't see how I would have ever felt differently about this film. It falls apart on the page and you can do whatever you want. Casting wise, you can do whatever you, you want with the editing the director's uninformed choices and lack of distinctive vision and cohesion in the language of film and present presenting visual imagery and this screenplay just they fall apart. Well, that's like it's both. It's it's both what's on the screen and on the page. Yeah, because I mean sometimes you know you can you can try to dazzle us. You can refin. You can you can J.J. Abrams. You can Michael Mann. You can you can show me a bunch of beautiful light and smoke. Um, for like half a movie and, and make me forget how much I hate the screenplay. But, mm. you know, they, they didn't do that here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know that I hate the material. Like, I think oh, I the do. material is very Rosemary, Rosemary's Baby-esque, and that's great material. I think the the, the fact that it's, a, it's about a character experiencing paranoia as she undergoes pregnancy and she's kind of being gaslit. I'm, I mean, I don't have any problem with with the, that in did you itself. feel the paranoia no but that's like not, I was that's not watching a, the paranoia well yeah but that's not that's not a, a, like a question of the material like that's more kind of i would trump that more up to execution um mm. and i think it's just almost like a little bit vague about what she's even paranoid about she starts to get the hunch that pierce brosnan the doctor has done something to her um and then that he and, slept with baby. justin Thoreau. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's just not very un- unsettling. It just doesn't have the power to chill. Whether it's the 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 filmmaking or the performances, it just doesn't. It just doesn't really produce an effect. Um, but uh, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I I don't know that I would say that this material is 
um, you know, unproducible. I, I mean, you know, I, I honestly don't think it's that far in its structure from something like Get Out, which is sort of a melding of kind of comedic satire and outright horror. I, I would think someone with a uh, uh, kind of a sharper vision might have brought this together a bit more clearly and effectively. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly auteurs that can literally take like a leaflet and make it compelling. But um, if we're just looking at like what is spoken and like what the storylines are, like it to me, I, I think it's I, I don't think that it's producible personally as a screenplay. Like it just doesn't it doesn't do anything that seems original or informed or um, has a cohesive feeling of um, comeuppance or restriction or risk or, or anything. I hate the conventionality of the the ending at the beginning here. It, it does no mm-hmm. good. Um, and then the the director doesn't have that, you know, Roman Polanski quality to make this look so visually compelling and moving and horrifying just to look at that the material ends up working it looks very plain the offices are shot very boringly it it just it all feels very plain looking there's no deep philosophical questioning that i had um like i mentioned i've i've seen plenty documentaries about this recently and um it's it's very much a cultural thing of the moment here where it it doesn't feel like there's a there's a reason or a purpose to it, I guess. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I guess I would maybe say that the purpose feels very muddled. Like, it feels like it very much has things it wants to say. It feels like it has a philosophy, which is about, like, women feeling like they're agents. They're stripped of agency mm-hmm. in some way in sort of a uh, patriarchal uh, system, the, the 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 system of pregnancy and all everything around it. Um, there's like that whole kind of montage that um, this other doctor she goes to who is more uh, earthy no, and herbal. Yeah, it's not a doctor. She's like it's a, a midwife or a... Yeah, yeah, midwife. Yeah. yeah, something. Yeah, and we get this total kind of like non-diegetic montage where she's talking about... Um, like the history of pregnancy and the practice of uh, of how men have come to control it and all of that. Um, I think that is very poorly folded into the movie itself. But I feel like the movie very much has ideas. It's just that they're not all that persuasively or um, cogently articulated. Yeah, I think if that would have been the focus without this homage to Rosemary's Baby, I, I would agree. But it's, it's that it's pulling all this stuff in and it doesn't actually have any focus because it's trying to reference and pull and and talk about so much that it ends up Mm -hmm. talking about essentially nothing um you you, you've mentioned a couple times and i I lost my train of thought that about this interesting thing with the mommy brain and you know um Mm -hmm. depictions of women in in parenting that are more accurate and i actually think that the space for that is weirdly enough sitcoms um, Good mm-hmm. Girls was just canceled, but I think that Good Girls was a very interesting depiction of conventional crime drama with, you know, mothers who are single going through divorces, trying to juggle relationships, um, and trying to juggle marriages simultaneously with parenting. Um, I, th- that's a little bit looser as it's a crime drama. Um, and unfortunately it was just canceled, but also there is Working Moms on Netflix, 
which mm. is a really great depiction of women trying to ha- quote unquote, as Tina Fey would say, have it all um, mm. in 30 rock. And then um, additionally, I think there's a film called single parents on ABC and Hulu um, that is um, gosh, what's the, th- there's an SNL guy who is kind of one of the main characters, but it's basically about single parents and it shows men and women doing parenting stuff. And when I, when I just think about depictions of parenting in the lens format, I just keep coming back to these interesting sitcom characters that get to sit in 80 plus hours of episodes and really show what it's like to be something. I I don't know that um, I would argue that film has to do that. I would just say that I think that sitcom is doing a more interesting job of it contemporarily. Yeah, I do think there are things like parenting, things like marriage that are so defined by their by their long-term nature. Like mm-hmm. the mar- marriage is something that is supposed to never end. Yes. That makes it in a way very suited for uh for a serial format like television. Um parenting, you know. Right, you, Breaking you, Bad, one of the most interesting depictions of marriage of all time. Yeah, you have you have kids. If you have kids, you have your kids until you die or they die. It is a very forever kind of thing that makes sense for the serial format. Pregnancy horror, though, seems like something that could fit well within a film. Um Yeah. I, I'd like to see an original version of it, I guess. Yeah, I'm not saying that this is it, but I would think that, I mean, with something so well-defined, it is nine months. There is a beginning, a middle, and an end with such clearly defined stages um, that everyone can relate to or everyone is familiar with to some degree. Um, I think it makes it actually sort of like almost too easy of a thing to use in a movie Mm -hmm. structurally, Um, which is weird. Like, I don't even really feel like I kind of experienced like the arc of this pregnancy in a way. Um, That's because it's not conventionally depicted. Right? It's like she's pregnant and then there's 30 minutes until the comeuppance. I I feel like. Like it's it's very beat, 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 beat over. And we already know what the over kind of is. You get the sense that she's going to do what she does. I won't spoil that just because... If I did, you would literally have no reason to sit through this movie. Brand and new. if well, anyone wants to suffer through it, you're going to need a reason to finish it. <laughs> it's on Hulu. If it you is. would like to check it out. I hate it more than you, from what I can tell. Um, so I win. There you go. <laughs> Round one. <laughs> that was false positive. On to Adam Leon's Italian Studies, follow-up to Netflix's Tramps. All right, Michael, this is a film that stars Vanessa Kirby as she kind of flits and floats around New York City after losing her dog. And Mm -hmm. I still don't know what her character's name is, or if anything that I saw is technically accurate or true outside of the dog coming back? I think those comments nicely capture the elusiveness of this film and its narrative and its content. Um, You said this was on your top ten for the festival, yeah? It is. It's in my top five. Top five? I think it's number four. Yeah, so you responded well. Um, It's probably in my top 30 to 40 on the year. Solid. Um, 
yes, story wise, we, we we meet Vanessa Kirby. We um, meet her not in New York City, but I think in uh, it's a European city. I think right. Uh, if I remember yeah, correctly, yeah, you're talking about the record studio, right? Right. Yeah, I don't know where that was. Um, unfortunately, I I just had the opportunity to watch this uh, the once, and then Same. it it I think expired on Tribeca's playback thing. <laughs> Um, so I don't recall that, but I can tell you that I loved that music that they were recording. Mm. Absolutely oh. loved it. That was a great introduction. It's, uh, Let's Eat Grandma, the band, uh, like an indie pop band. Good stuff. I'm a big fan. Yeah. Good, okay. Good stuff to check out. I'll, I'll have to get you to send me the link to listen to more. After yes. This. Yeah. Um, so I imagine it was more mood, um, that you responded to then then story here or was it um ideas that yeah were coming to mind yeah there's all that i i think we've briefly talked about this but um one of my favorite things in the um one of the things that i like in storytelling is when a story is being told about a character and whatever the interpretation is if it's an audiobook if it's a if it's an audio podcast if it's a, a written book if it's uh, a film, if it's a television show, if you can make me the interpreter of the story, whatever the medium is, feel the way that the main character feels, uh, that's one of my favorite things. And what this film does is it presupposes Vanessa Kirby into a sort of fugue state. Mm. And at no point does it cohesively make sense outside of its various vignettes. And you end up feeling removed from time and confused about where you are, not only in time, but but place and your identity and who you are and who she is and and what exactly is the foot. Um, Which library am I in Um, is a, a thought that I had at one point in time. And the fact that I was thinking all those things in a film about a fugue state, ostensibly, goes a long way for me. Um, it went a long way for me in that specific, just to bring it back up again, Breaking Bad episode where Walter White goes into a fugue state and that episode really makes you confused about what exactly is happening. And by the end, you come to learn, learn the term fugue state, which is probably where I learned it from. That's exactly what this is. It's about being unmoored and kind of mercurial floating through time and space without really a defined identity and then adapting to situations, which is exactly what it's asking you, the viewer, to do, to just kind of buy into whatever's happening right now. All of a sudden, it it almost takes up a documentary aspect where she's asking these kids these questions. And it reminded me of my own personal times where it's like you're trying to invent a character and write a character. And you're almost asking yourself to answer yourself so that you can invent something that is different than yourself and all that really spoke to me um and i i don't think it will for most people but i think that for a few people that have my sensibilities or something like them um it'll be very uh it's kind of it's a very beautiful attempt to show what that artistic creation process almost is like yeah i think i would agree about the sense of unmoorage that it um gives us i guess the kind of issue for me is that it it doesn't really help me understand what i what it is i'm even being unmoored from i kind of feel like there's no solid ground um in this movie that um it's sort of 
starting from it feels a little too wispy and elusive for its own good um can i can i just interject i don't mean to throw you off track but that's exactly what it would be like if you were in a fugue state you wouldn't remember mm. who you were yeah i so you wouldn't have that concrete so so the thing that i like which is the fact that you feel what it would be like to be in a fugue state is exactly what you don't like because you you would like to have a structure to the film where there's kind of a, a more clear delineation of train stops along the way is that correct um yeah i i, okay. I, I yeah i think there's just sort of an absence of meaning in um the headspace it, it puts me in i just i just don't know that i find it all that interesting of a headspace to be in i think it's partly that i not really not on the vanessa kirby train personally um you know this uh cluelessness and confusion that she embodies i think feels just kind of labored to me i i i personally just don't really respond to the performance i think it seems a little strained um and it feels a little bit like the we got a movie star let's make a movie and it becomes more of of kind of an exercise in wisp than narrative um which i mean i love non-narrative stuff i feel like most most stuff that i'm really drawn to is not plot centric but um it, this feels just pretty this this feels pretty weightless even though there is some kind of style and innovation that i really like i think this is definitely the most interesting of the three movies for me that we're talking about just because it is doing something um a little more risky formally um in sort of um um making it a bit blurry what's what's in so-called reality within this movie and what's sort of the fiction that our character is um, drawing up in her head. Um, but I think it's just a little too kind of untethered from anything that I can, um, find meaningful or interesting. Um, though it, it, it does put us in that headspace, I would agree. Yeah. I, I don't think I disagree with anything that you said, aside from the fact that you don't think Vanessa Kirby is a talented actress i mm. i haven't um, seen her in that many movies um, I, I, I would show you the crown and, and ask i haven't seen to, the crown yep. to reconsider uh, i would also force you to watch mission impossible fallout and force you to reconsider i liked her in fallout I think, <clears throat> i'm sure if we go back and listen to ourselves talk about that i'm sure i i, I feel like you that. saying her so i should say that in this movie i yeah. did not respond at quite as much yeah yeah i think that it's tough because it's so subjective, the reason I like it. So I think that anyone else that dislikes it for any sort of a, a broader, more conventional reason, or even a personal reason, has just as much ground to stand on. So I won't say you're wrong or anything. It's just, like, I I had the privilege of not viewing it in any sort of a negative space, and I, I really appreciated the fact that it made me the viewer feel the way that she is supposed to be feeling from my interpretation of the film and i really liked the the warm world cold world aside i think that's exactly how i would break down how people feel about this you're either warm towards it or you're cold towards it and you're not necessarily wrong it's just the the interpretation of the piece that you're inhabiting um i 
also liked the same aside in that moment where there's a, a all bread sandwich. If you take mm. two pieces of bread and you insert another piece of bread in the middle of it, is that or is that not the definition of a bread sandwich? <laughs> these are these are tough questions. Yeah. <laughs> how, how are you going to um, lubricate that hot dog? I believe is another discussion in that mm. moment. There's there's a lot of fun stuff. There's um, just to get into some of the conventions. Um, there's some stuff that I, I think is maybe the reason that you responded warmly towards it. Um, some of the documentarian aspect maybe interested you. I'm just riffing here. And I'm going to guess mm-hmm. that you liked a lot of the um, alley and street level cinematography that's very reminiscent of the um, the Safi brothers. And oh, um, therefore, Sorsese, I suppose. They, they hadn't come to mind, but I, but I could see that. You know, They shoot um, some bodegas. Sort of they shoot trucks the getting unloaded. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, very different, a very different kind of tempo. Um, but yeah, in terms of the the kind of New York ness of it, mm-hmm. yeah, I could see that. And um, it wasn't shot gaudily, you know. It was very much that street level, like kind of soft the S where it's just like this is, this is the, the neighborhood. This is the jewelry store next to the bodega that's getting the Coca Cola put in the bodega. Yeah, and honestly, I don't really, I don't want to come down too hard on it. It's um, because I honestly feel like I didn't get that great a grip on it, and I think that is probably not a surprising response. Um, but m- a lot of what I felt this movie trying to do, I just didn't really get a handle on with it, with with some of the interviews with the younger um, teenagers that our lead character comes to hang out with over the course of this night. Um, I just don't know that I ever really totally got my head around what this movie is trying to do um, in terms of her relationship to these kids um, and what this story might mean to her. I mean, I'm totally willing to say that I think I just mm. it just slipped through my fingers. Um, but, you know, when that happens, you can only respond so much. Um, I definitely think it's something I would have res- um, been a bit more engrossed by if I had seen it in a theater. You know, this is not the kind of thing... Um, where you should watch it midday as I did. Um, partly because I just didn't expect this from, uh, the director of, um, something like Tramps. It's a very different kind of movie. Um, this is very mood centric and kind of more about ambiance in a way, whereas that was a little caper, uh, Mm -hmm. in New York City. Gimme the Loot was kind of similar. Um, so it was partly just that it, uh, caught me off guard that maybe didn't help it. But, um, you know, on a second go-round, I, I think it's entirely possible I'd be more open to it. All right. Um, let me give you two different versions, if I can. And I'm saying to myself, if I can, mm. of what occurred within the film. Mm. Um, so there, there's two theories, and I'll give you my theory the way that I viewed it before I under before I read anything else, then I'll give you the the more I think conventional view from other folks. Mm. So the the view that I had was that parts of the film are true and parts of the film are inventions of character talking to her, um, so that she can write her next piece essentially, mm-hmm. and that those characters introduced her back to her own work so that she can write. And that um, a few characters at the party weren't real. And that's when she was kind of drinking and, and 
really getting loose to to find herself and she did actually share that moment in the restaurant because she did actually meet that girl who she meets outside the recording studio um that's the way that i watched the film that's the way that i viewed it i i can't guarantee that those people that she's interviewing where she's off screen and there's no real correlation to prove that they're within the world with her i think that that's where it gets very interesting the version that i think david ehrlich presupposes and a a few other people um kind of state that the film could be viewed through the lens of is that when she goes outside the record studio she's about to do this again And that the entire thing was like all those people were not real and that it was all Mm. her writing process and her Mm. meeting these characters and going on this trip with them. And that's she went into this creative fugue state and that going into that recording studio um, and seeing that creativity re-inspired her to go be creative again. And she walked out and went back into that confused mercurial fugue-like state where she re-meets a character who reminds her of some characters that she'd written previously and goes on and and ostensibly maybe she goes on and does that again at the end of the film like maybe it's introducing you to her repeating the same process um i i personally think that's a little bit more forced of a theory but i've read a lot more pieces that had that interpretation than mine yeah i i feel like i'm just coming up short here because i wish i don't even know that i can pick between the two i understand the idea behind the um two interpretations here i don't know if i do subscribe to one or the other i think there are just kind of ways certain things hit me and i don't know if i can even fit them into an overall scheme i think things like the interviews themselves where we're not seeing vanessa kirby we're just seeing her kind of off camera acting as interviewer with these teens these felt like they were occurring in kind of an interior space to me like they were interviews with fictional characters she was trying to understand Mm -hmm. her fictional characters um but uh you know as for how much of the on the streets experience we see is within her head being fictionalized versus real i really can't say and and, um i i I think that slipperiness is a good thing but i just um i i I do um wish there was a little bit more for me to to hold on to i actually kind of hate that i'm saying that um you know I, i like something that's a little bold but i don't know just came up a little short somehow yeah let me let me just um complete the announcement that while that's my interpretation i don't necessarily think that's correct or even if it is correct that it's the right interpretation to always have i think that this is a film that should be adapted that you should feel as differently about on various screens as vanessa kirby seems to feel as she goes i i think that the idea of a right interpretation for this film um is exactly what adam didn't want um and we'll later record another episode about thief in which the end of the film um him and the star disagree about what exactly that meant and um i i think that that's you know that's where it gets interesting places like this um i hated false positives so i did not want to talk about any images per se or scenes 
But mm. with this one, do you have a favorite scene? That's hard because this kind of feels like one big scene to me, to be honest. It's, that's probably in part because uh, it's been a little longer since I actually watched this one between... Uh, For both of us. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's kind of all a bit of a blur. And I think that's kind of a good thing about this movie, that that's kind of the idea. Um, I don't know. I mean, I guess I'd go with the intro. The intro actually pulled me in only because I recognized the music. I'll go with something mm. super personal. That I think the music is great. I think it's, I think it's Nicholas Bratel who does the score. Mm-hmm. He does. Um, I think uh, some of that's pretty great. I mean, I do think I was maybe uh, pulled in a bit by some of these opening scenes and just some of the curiosity was, was stimulating. What about you? So just on that note, I do think this is one of those movies that's going to be like not critically panned, but really mixed right now. I think that in 10 or 20 years, a lot more people are going to come up on it. Mm. I think that the more distance we get from it, the more we might appreciate the piece for being just the piece. Like it's, it's going to kind of be its own song. And whether or not we understand the song or really get the lyrics or whatever, like I think we might just appreciate it a lot more in the future than we do now. Um, my favorite scene is where she tries to catch some sleep on the, um, not the banister. God, there's a the platform between stairs. I forget the term of mm. what that word is, but um, she she's asleep on the stairwell, and the sun's rising through the windows and it's coming in and it casts the staircase, um, a little, um, the gosh, what would that even be called? The little pillars in that mm. are holding up the, the, um, the banister of the staircase. And mm-hmm. those are, those are projected onto her and mm. she's in a prison of shadow cast by mm. light while she's, in this in-between state where you can see she's waking up, but she's still asleep. Mm. Um, and that just, I, I think that scene is kind of in essence, the film. I love that scene. And I, I can still remember it perfectly. It, it's a beautiful image. Nice. I like it. Um, on to last film show. Michael, fitting to his character, does not like nice things, fun things, or warm things. I don't think that is a fair characterization. That is completely fair, and you are not allowed to fight that characterization, sir. (laughs) I take it you were more positive than I was on last film show? It wasn't hard. All you had to be was mixed, and you'd be positive, more positive than you on this one. I think you gave this one a two out of five. I mean, I, I'll say I'm F. mixed. Mix is fine. I wouldn't know that I'd give it an F, but I mean, I didn't. I didn't love this movie. Though, put it that way. American yeah. grading system. You gave it an F. You gave it at most 44, 46 out of a hundred. That's an F, sir. Yeah, I mean, when I'm rating things that I just don't like, I don't spend very much time watching movies that I don't care for. So, like, the ratings don't mean much at that point because I don't even really know how to distinguish between a movie that I, I dislike versus really dislike. It's like, is that a one or a two versus stars out of five? Like hate versus I don't every know, I just, print of I, this should be destroyed. <laughs> yeah, it just uh, didn't do as much for me. Put it that way. But this is uh, directed by Pan Nolan, I believe. Mm-hmm. Set in India. It's about a 
little boy uh, falling in love with movies at his local cinema against his father's wishes. Um, You liked it, yeah? I did like it. I I will mention that I think the boy grows up and is living in the same city that he grew up in. And, you know, it's fairly autobiographical in that sense, I think. Um, yeah, there's a lot of good faith and earnestness here. Um, I, I'd say I'm 50, 50 on movies that try to be really hyper positive and look back film with this kind of rose colored glasses, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, and this is one of the ones that I, I definitely am on the positive side of, um, compared to the negative side. There's, I guess, two others that come off the top of my head, Hugo and, I think it's called Searching for Fellini or Finding Fellini. And it's it's about a, yeah, a, familiar. a girl who kind of falls in love with the films of Fellini and wants to go to France. And it's I, I think that's probably one of my favorite ones of all time just because of the uh, the convention and the unconvention of it. But yeah, this it's it's just romanticism and it's, um, you know, it's. I think competently and interestingly cohesively shot. Um, the the love for food is is I think really not overstated, but a nice little blend into the picture as it goes. The um, movement from steam to electricity is a nice kind of um, stand-in for the the cohesive movement of film to the digital format. Um, there's just a lot here that I responded warmly towards. Um, to reference Italian studies again, this was just a warm world movie for me, not cold world. Yeah, I, I would very much describe it as a movie that is warm in temperature. I wouldn't say I, I, I hated it by any ways. It, it, I was a little ready for it to be over after 75% of the way through or so. Yeah, this, I, I, I did say not it love does this. overstay its welcome. Like, I, I think it's it could have been hours, higher paced. Yeah. Um, you know, the first I, 45, I think, were really fun. Yeah, I mean, I I would agree. I think this has earnestness in spades. Um, I don't know that I would say it gave me too much uh, in terms of a, like, I, I don't think I had anything resembling a complex response to much of what it showed me. Um, I I don't know that it's a good thing when you can watch a movie and you pretty much know how every review of it will will sound like. Um, this one being, mm. it, it's an ode to the movies. It's uh, um, a love letter to cinema, you know, and it very much is those things. And it's very sweet in that regard. I think it is totally fine. I would encourage people to see it if it sounds good to me. For me, it was a little corny. Um, I think... The filmmaking is a little over emphatic about things that should be a little more subtle. Um, I like some of the sentiments and ideas about this boy learning about how um, cinema is born from light and from light we get stories. I think it's delivered a little heavy handedly and just uh, it's a little lacking in, in eloquence with these ideas that I like. Who wouldn't? What cinephile wouldn't? It just seems a little contrived as cinephilic cat bait to me um or uh cat uh catnip i i can buy my my words there i think it's fine catfish yeah yeah exactly Um, this movie's a catfish (laughs) (laughs) i think it's fine i mean it's just i i not something i i'm terribly excited about i think 
It's ex- kind of exactly what you would think a sweet movie about a little boy falling in love with the movies would be. I don't think it's it really surprises you at any turns. I don't think it really wants anything to be very coarse or challenging. Um, but it's it's cute. I mean, I, I don't even like using the word cute, but I think that's what this movie kind of wants to be. So that's fine. Um, I don't mean to sound condescending in that way. Um you know, I can give you an example, like where the boy first goes to the cinema and he's sort of looking around the theater and he's, his, his mouth is kind of falling open, right? And there's a, a cut to a fan in the corner. And that's the kind of cut that I think um, uh, other directors might not underline because they know we can kind of pick up as observant um, viewers what this space is like and kind of, um, you know, pick out the details that he would probably remember from his childhood. This movie, I think, underlines a lot of its um, Mm. ideas and sentiments in a way that I just don't think makes for a very interesting experience. Interesting. So I agree with, like, everything you said until that anecdote. And the reason that I kind of disagree about that anecdote is because I believe preceding that or directly after that, Spend some time on the train tracks with the boy. And um, there, there's like a direct, I think, reference and, and love there to Sergio Leone's hypercuts. Um, mm. And, you know, like that fan, like cutting directly to it in that way just like really brings it front and center in a very Leone way. Um, so I, I think that that one... I particularly that intro from once upon a time in the west where it's the train station and Mm. you know like we're we're getting the sense of the cut 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 to to show us all these different things about the train station it was kind of like showing us all these different things about the theater after walking the train tracks um Mm -hmm. so that i didn't mind as much but i i do think that it is cute it is forced um it is autobiographical um, it is overtly conventional in many ways. It doesn't take any real risks. Um, but it's it's cute. It, it does succeed in being cute. It's like looking at a stuffed animal and saying that is a stuffed animal. Um, it's exactly what you expect it to be and, and nothing really more than that. And it, it doesn't fail. It doesn't have a... a you know, a sharp tag or a zipper. If I'm continuing the stuffed animal analogy, like you're, you're getting softness essentially everywhere that you want to hug the stuffed animal or press it to your flesh. So it's not going to betray you really. Um, but it also gets slightly uninteresting. Like, I think that if I was seven to 12, like I would really love this movie. I I would really respond and identify with the, the casting of light through different things and being enamored by that. Remember, watching the Sinbad films and as a as a young boy, uh, checking them out from the library and watching Ray Harryhausen's monsters come to life and just being so enamored. And I, I see a lot of that boy in the way that, that Pan is depicting this, but um you know, that only goes so far in certain ranges. And though I'm I'm positive on it, I d I don't think that it's breaking ground or is a must-see or, or any of that stuff. It's just, it is exactly what we said. It's a love letter. It's an ode to cinema. 
And if you're in the mood that you need an ode to cinema and you don't want to watch, you know, 20 hours of Martin Sorsese talk to you about <laughs> the movies, then I guess you could watch this one instead. What, what I did appreciate about this was the, uh, the infamiliarity that I have with Indian cinema and seeing some of the great ones brought to life and his excitement from it because it's so foreign to me and I haven't had those experiences. We've talked for years about trying to work more Indian um, films into our, our watching habits and I think for at least two years tried to figure out how to do an Apu trilogy episode. Um, so maybe if anything we can use this as um, y- you know fuel to that fire for me to to make that happen with you um but yeah i i see mostly where you're coming from and all other counts <laughs> yeah i would totally second the comment about just the exposure to some of the indian movies we see the kid watching um you know i i, I don't know that we sit on too many of them long enough for me to have really um have grown interest in like any particular film like maybe it, you know, if it had kind of doubled down on like there being a film that really jumped out to him, like it, mm-hmm. you know, it definitely leans into stuff like 2001 or Tarkovsky or Leone. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I wish I, I kind of wish I came away with it from like even one, maybe, I, maybe they're named some Indian movies. It probably does. And I'm just forgetting. Well, but, they, um, particularly there's that star. There's like the star and they, they do the patter in mm-hmm. like the first 50 minutes of like his dialogue exchange with that other guy. Mm. Um, and like, it made me, it made me want to see that scene. It made me want to see that Indian star of yeah, of Bollywood. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think there are plenty of other love letters to movies out there that just offer a, uh, a, a bit, a fresher take on it. Like, I, you know, I, when at the end it's just, you know, he's kind of listing a bunch of great directors I don't disagree. I love them too, uh, like uh, all the ones I know at least. Um, but you know, I don't know that not, not it's not really producing any response that I find interesting or or striking. Um, it's just sweet, and that's fine. But I don't know. I'm, I'm just not in my sweet spot at the moment to use that word twice in a row. <laughs> yeah, I, I completely agree because what this does is it tries to be a love letter and ode to cinema. What it also is, is it serves as Pan's um, depiction of himself autobiographically. And in doing that, um, we don't really get to invest into the genres that he's homaging, Mm. truly. And I think that it would be a lot more interesting to see someone go big and make a 10-hour film that's risky and make it an (laughs) anthology where it's a little boy that's, that's like falling in love with with film or whatever and then he goes to bed after 45 minutes and wakes up and all of a sudden we're in 45 minutes to an hour of sci-fi film (laughs) where it's direct homage to kubrick and tarkovsky within the genre of sci-fi in space and then whatever happens and it fades and then we're in Lars von Trier world and everything's fucked up and it's hellish. Like I would rather see a big risk where this little boy type character is inserted into these different things that you're trying to pay homage to. And then you take big risks trying to marry your autobiography into the genre itself and the filmic language adjustments that they informed, you you know, show me how Fritz Lang 
moved you over an hour and insert a little boy into it and um, don't stay in the same conventional area. Pretend it's a dream. Commit to showing me Lang World, where you're trying to balance how to communicate that he's both German and American and his filmic languages intermingling. Like, that would be so much more risky and interesting. And even if it failed, I'd be so much more excited to have watched it. Yeah. I mean, we get a lot of expressions from this kid as he reacts to different movies. I'm sure the Von Trier expression would be <laughs> memorable. That's for sure. Uh, yeah, you know, it's, I mean... He'd ev- his tongue off. Evidently, it is, it is autobiographical. I think I think you can kind of just pick up on that, you know, with these kinds of movies that you just sense that this is yeah. born out of real experience. But I almost think it kind of just undersells its own uh, personalness because the kid feels a little kind of familiar to me you know these kind of the troublemaking nature the relationship with the father who's kind of a disciplinarian and just wants him to see uh devotional movies not the pop entertainment um it, I, I mean i think it comes pretty close to just being kind of cliche and how it um portrays some of those relationships i actually was kind of intrigued by the mother partly because we don't see as much from her but i think you just see these looks from her that seem to really contain some feeling and i kept wanting to like come back to her mm-hmm. um and, and, and kind of experience that a bit more um and you know i think you could argue like that his dad hits him and stuff and that's something that's a little thornier about the movie but even that feels a little uh undersold or something like that um and by no means am I saying you need to be the kid hard or something like that. That sounds weird, but, you know, it's just um, a way in which this movie seems to um, continue to want to kind of soften things in the in favor of being that um, sweet ode to the movies that it is. Yeah, I think I, I completely agree with all that. It's I've already seen a bunch of kids get hit. Like, I don't either, need more of that, necessarily. Either show but. me a really good... <laughs> hit or a really good reason why you're getting hit or like why 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 do you need to do that is it to inform the father character because like he's already got it rough enough like yeah you you don't need to double down on that and then yeah more time with the mom because whenever she is making food i just want to pause the film and hit print like it just looks so much more interesting than when I prepare food. <laughs> oh, you're now we could go on about that for sure. <laughs> um, so this is a film that I might have a, a favorite scene for. I'm definitely po- more positive on it than you. Do you have a favorite scene in this movie or are you just totally left cold by it? Uh, do I have a favorite scene? I mean, I guess idea wise, one thing we see him reacting to at the end is watching all of these old film prints be destroyed and remade into, uh, like bracelets. Mm-hmm. I think particularly for women, and he sees young girls wearing these bracelets on the train. I think you could argue that there's something a little complex about that. Like, there is something very bittersweet and feelings surrounded by stories that are stories you will never experience again. So even though it's maybe a little on the nose or a little bit lacking in poetry, I do kind of like that sentiment that it kind of ends on because I think that's maybe a little bit more thought-provoking perhaps. So that's kind of a group of scenes towards the end, but I'll go with that. What about you? I'll go with the cheesy scene where Mm. all the boys are working together to try to get the the fucking Mm. image to project onto the screen of the single cell. 
Um, mm. And just the the innovativeness and the commitment and the romanticism towards the the story and the idea. Like I just I completely vibe with that. I remember exactly when I was that kid and how badly I wanted to to be able to see those images and how badly I wanted to see more images and get access to more stories and that I would have been willing to break into a cinema and steal a bunch of trunks of, of film uh, celluloid just so that I could spend time with each of those images and how active my own internal monologue was about each of those things. Um, so it, it inspired me because it reminded me of my own history. I like it. I like it. Well, that's it for Tribeca 2021. I'm Taylor Baker, and I'm here with S.C. Davis, who just had her film The Justice of Bunny King premiere at Tribeca 2021 Film Festival. And let's start with the most, um, I think, important sentence you say in the entire film, which is, you just keep that door locked. That's a terrible and powerful sentence. You made it appear effortless and the stakes shift immediately in those moments. Um, did it feel as easy as it looked as you delivered that line and all the sentiment behind it and you know how you just kind of changed the entire stakes of the film from then on? It's no longer about your kids coming to the garage. It's about you getting Thomas into safety at some level. Wow. Um, that's you just gave me goosebumps talking about that in that way. Um, I I don't know if if that was consciously my turning point. Uh, I think I think the turning point happens for for Bunny when she sees what's going on and decides to walk through the door into the garage and um, confront it. She knows in that moment that. There's no going back. There's no going back. As soon as she gets out her little money bag and smashes, <laughs> smashes him around the head. Um, yeah. um, I think, um, yeah, just knowing, just knowing that 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 her niece is in that danger, and having experienced it, and having knowing that her sister has experienced it and is essentially married to a perpetrator like that it's um it's pretty it's a pretty dark place to sort of enter and go right there's no way there is it's no very way dark anyone anyone that I can care for will uh, I will allow to be put into that situation yeah but um you know there's there's just a certain effortlessness to the way that you get into these really heightened emotions throughout the film. Um, I don't know if it was conscious for you or, or a decision you made early on, but you sometimes have like a very, very faint voice with, with your character, especially when she's talking to her daughter and, and you're having these really sweet interactions. And that just kind of increases the the emotionality for when there's these loud confrontations, um, especially in, in these scenes, just because of the, the stakes for them. But even at the end, during that, that kind of, you know, dog day afternoon kind of ending that you guys have, um, you know, there's, there's a few heightened scenes there, especially when they're trying to, um, to separate Thomason's character from you and you have to smash the window and, and undo the door. 
Yeah, that was fun. That was my idea. I said, I've got to smash a window. (laughs) (laughs) Something has to break. There has to be something that has to break in this moment. Um, You know, it was quite interesting. I haven't, I I don't necessarily read reviews, but I do when they're sort of put under my nose. (laughs) And and one of the reviews said... um, said you know that these sort of uh steadily more unbelievable unbelievable scenarios um uh sort of are a detriment to the film but i loved what you just said about dog day afternoon because that was certainly uh, an inspiration you know what why why wouldn't they believe that um bunny king would go to those lengths to save her children yeah, and to, I to mean, be with her children when you know, would they believe Al Pacino would go to those lengths to get a sex change job for his partner? I mean, yes, yeah, really, they're both it's a real heightened. story, right? Yeah, it's, it's based exactly. on a true story. Um, but I, I think that the crucial thing is that during the Dog Day Afternoon sequence, if you will, um, I, I don't know the name of the character, but the the woman who um, who had locked you in the room, she goes back in at some point i don't know if you've watched the entire film after shooting it but she's looking at the record of bunny and it it shows um you know if you read between the lines that the person she killed her husband or partner uh was ostensibly abusing the children or her and that she was in fact defending them and then all of a sudden you know this is just a continuation of defending the kids from um being hurt by an exterior source. So I think that for me, the internal logic was completely there. That that doesn't really make any sense. <laughs> yeah, it's a, I think it's quite a quite a logical film. Yeah. And you know, I what I love so much about Bunny is her that she never gives up and that she's eternally hopeful and she's always trying to make things better for everyone yeah. around her, particularly her children and people in her care. She, and even when you know uh living in the in the um on her sister's and brother-in-law's couch mm-hmm. she cares for their children she cares for his mother she does all the cooking she does all the washing and cleaning and folding <laughs> she picks mm-hmm. the kids up from school she's incredibly generous and just everything she does is is really done generously and with love and she it i think that it's a representation of millions of women in this situation who have not who don't rarely get their voice uh out there into the world and everyone is so quick to judge and um and yet so many women on the poverty line trying to look after their children trying with all their might and really uh, unsupported by the governments, certainly in Western society, completely unsupported by their government um, and uh, by the sort of legal system of, of, um, of, (laughs) of protection. Uh, you know, women who are experiencing domestic violence have survived domestic violence who have, who've survived prison after, after, you know, perhaps murdering their partners um, because, because of 
in self-defense or in defense of their children. I think it's it's a, a it's it's a kind of upbeat, positive, <laughs> shouted out loud kind of come on guys for just trying here kind of voice that really needs to be heard at this time. Yeah, it's it's an exaggerated but but hopeful voice. Um, you, you know, you're talking about the the value of of childcare and you know all this home labor as well that that your character does. Um, you know. Meanwhile, we're, you know, starting with you washing windows on the streets with um, uh, that that group or, or gang of folks that that's a really fun character group. But um, gosh, when you talk, when when your character talks um, your sister's husband into letting the kids and you stay in the garage, we've just seen like this entire exasperating day and like everything you've done and everything you're expected to do. And then he says, you just gotta gotta keep chipping in more money, and it just kind of you know it underlines in a great foreshadowing way, like just how much of a dick this guy is. <laughs> like just <laughs> we, we watched you take care of all of his responsibilities essentially, and then he, he's like, "Sure, as long as you're giving me more money." <laughs> more money more money than what i pay to look mm -hmm. after his family and sleep on his couch after his mates have finished their drunken night of watching the the football yeah yeah it's there's quite a few moments like that i, I did have a question about um the car washing scenes did you guys do all those at once did you get to kind of riff or were those scripted oh look it was a mixture of script and improvisation i mean we did we had a few days washing <laughs> windscreen <laughs> and we had, we had a fair amount of practice too. We did yeah. some pra practice days with real, in, on real intersections. And, oh, um, okay. um, and um, uh, it was part riff, part, part scripted. Um, and, but it was really complicated to lock off a, a big, um, sort of area area intersection sort of multi-lane intersection and get changing traffic moving through it and <laughs> it was you know it was pretty low budget film and um so we got to know a lot of those drivers quite well good <laughs> <laughs> i i don't know if you're familiar with the florida project but those scenes in particular with yeah. the way the sun's hitting um, you know, you say it's low budget, but it, it feels like it's real. It looks pretty and it feels like it's real world. So it kind of had a little bit of that Sean Baker taste to it where it felt like, you know, this is, uh, the real world. And these are real moments that we're kind of seeing where you and, um, you, you know, the other folks working or laughing or playing a joke or, you, you know, particularly there's, uh, in the middle of the film, a scene where you kind of get into it with, uh, with a guy who doesn't want his windscreen washed and then you throw some stuff at it. So. <laughs> I think that's my fellow, my fellow squeegee bandit throwing, throwing stuff. At, oh, is it? Okay. Uh, screen. I tell it. As, Th that's uh, right. You were, you were going to give us a bad, bad reputation, but then, uh, <laughs> but then when the abuse comes back, back at me, I'm just, yeah. Yeah. 
it, I hope it mine gets <laughs> off just a little bit. Um, there, there's a few moments um, that you kind of get to build um, the believability of the character in the world um, just by your singular actions. Um, there, the first apartment showing you go to, um, there's a great interaction with that agent. Um, but you you go into the bathroom. And by the time you leave the bathroom, after being quite angry and checking the water pressure, you've, <laughs> you've captured the soap. Was that a scripted choice that you made? Was that a, a riff? Because that really just is like, this is, this is money in, in the pocket for tomorrow because I can use this to wash windscreen. <laughs> it's a great moment, isn't it? Um, that was actually scripted. Okay. Um, I wish I could claim that as my own. I quite often well, like you, little Well, you played like it, that. so I couldn't tell it was scripted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there were actually, there were more, there were more um, scenes that didn't make it to the film of, of house hunting. Um, okay. And in, and in really scuzzy uh, and, you know, group share, get one room to one, you know, yeah, six, yeah I, six, six by four room to share with your children, and um, and uh, they didn't make it into the film because you know film can only be so long. But um, it 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 was um like going into that apartment was like the best apartment. It was like the dream apartment. It was a pretty good apartment. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um. Did, did you make any early choices um, before you even started playing Bunny about how she was going to be different than other characters that, that you've played? Um, I, I think that your strength, I, I don't have extreme familiarity with your filmography, but I think um, just comparatively off the, the recent stuff I've seen, um, Bunny's strength is a lot more reserved and it just comes out almost by action more where um some of your other characters are a little bit more strongly worded or um you know they have uh like almost a you know a hand up to to keep people away from them but bunny's kind of accepting 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 until anything threatens her kids or or anything's like actually morally wrong and then it's the hammer yeah i don't i i spent uh quite a bit of time in new zealand before i began the actual shoot doing pre with Gason and and um, meeting a lot of people and doing a lot of research um I don't think that I I don't think that I try and work out how to do things differently from other characters I just try and be as honest to the character that I am playing at the time and as informed and try and get as much you know uh, ammunition under my belt to get me through which meant doing a lot of dialect work because although New Zealand might sound similar to Australian for an American ear it's it's so it's one of the hardest <laughs> accents to do um, and um and I knew that I was the only only non-New Zealander in the entire cast and crew and um I, I needed it to be 100% authentic so everyone would believe. 
Well, you convinced this American. I, I, that doesn't really mean anything. Ask a, ask someone from New Zealand. I think. No, I, I, I think I think I've done, I've done okay for the New Zealanders. They, they were, the whole the whole crew were like, "Yeah, you're rocking it, babe." And, um, <laughs> Good. And, um, um, I think you know what I love so much about Bunny is that is that upbeat. You know, she's ready to crack a joke. She's ready to to um she she's happy in a, she's happy in her own skin in a in a funny kind of way she doesn't she doesn't need she doesn't need anything except a job and a home and she's just completely um judged constantly for what she looks like and what she does and her history and uh the fact that her kids are in foster care so you know when she goes into that um sort of dress dress to impress or dress for success or whatever it's called you know uh charity um business where which we have both in australia and in new zealand where you know um, she gets her magic outfit women can can be dressed in donated clothing to to make a difference and get a job or, or um at an interview or whatever she she won't she doesn't want to wear dresses she doesn't really want to dress up at all but all of a sudden this beautiful woman gives her a um a suit that becomes her magic suit because Mm -hmm. instantly she puts it on it's like it's like a mask that that is that's magic and um people uh treated her completely differently and um she she uses it <laughs> yeah in the best possible way she can to to try and achieve great things <laughs> yep. it's a john travolta you know mm-hmm. and saturday it's, night fever suit <laughs> it's a it's a good outfit for the dog day afternoon thing i know we we do have to wrap up here soon i did want to ask you a, a question not about the movie i just wanted to ask you if you had a favorite performer growing up someone that influenced you maybe a favorite actress that you wanted to model yourself after anything like that Oh, so many. Judy Davis in Australia was a huge um, uh, mentor for me and uh, role model and um, and also, you know, Peter Weir as a director. I just, he's oh, yeah. sort of the person who uh, inspired me really to want to be an actor when I was a child. Cool. And um, with Picnic Hanging Rock and um, uh, Meryl Streep. Obviously, she's just really fantastic. But and um, Emma Tom- Thomas, Emma Thompson, sorry, Emma Thompson, Judy Dench, <laughs> uh, all of those great women that I just were were um, you know, <gasps> wow, the little boy in Oliver Twist, the movie mm-hmm. I wanted to be. I want to be a child actor and be as great <laughs> as he was. <laughs> that, that's awesome. Um, and then last question. I know that you and your husband, Justin Kurtzel, filmed, uh, I think, a film called Nitrum. Do you know when uh, audiences can see that or when it's going to premiere? So Justin Kurzel. Kurzel, sorry. It's, it's all right. Um, it's called Nitram, and it is actually having its world premiere in competition at the Cannes Film Festival um, awesome. on the 
very soon in July, in the middle of July. Excellent. Um, so after that, I am sure it will reach the world. And yeah, that's another film I'm incredibly proud of. And I'm super proud of him. Well, thank you for taking the time. I'm looking forward to seeing Nitram and um, hopefully I'll get to speak with you again sometime down the road. No worries. Thank you so much, Tyler. Thank you. And that's another one in the can.